God speaks to us in his word in Jude 1, 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, guys. You doing okay? Rowdy bunch. Just ready to go. And we're going to throw a party in here. We're going to throw some fireworks on, whatever we have to do. I'm glad to be here. My name is Chad Kinser. I haven't had a chance to meet you. Um, and as often as I get to be out here, I finally start to feel like a bit of an extended family member. So uh, I, I, feel, I feel right at home with you guys. So I'm glad to open God's Word today. Hey, I just want to say Memorial Day weekend, if you uh, have served in our military and have uh, served to defend the freedoms that we enjoy, even opening God's word together without fear of being persecuted or fear of being uh, sort of, you know, ran off. Like, man, this is an amazing thing. We want to say thank you for, for that service. Loved ones, say thank you so much. So let's pray as we open God's word, finishing this book. The last two verses, we've been here the last few weeks. Uh, I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and then we'll get to work. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the songs you've given us. Thank you for the prayers you've given us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin that you've offered to us. And we open your word now. We ask just for the help of the Spirit to, uh, to hold our attention, um, to spike up our affections for Jesus, uh, to give us greater capacity to, uh, to just surrender to Jesus. And so would you help us now? Would you help me now? And I offer this prayer in the strong name of our King. Amen. Amen. Well, let me start off with just sort of an obvious sort of statement that uh, we can all agree on. Maybe we can even amen to this. No one likes a bad meeting. Can I get an amen? No one likes a bad meeting. So this last Tuesday we had a training. Uh, we get all of our congregations together a couple of times a month. And uh, downtown we had this meeting last week about meetings. A meeting about meetings, right? It was a meeting about how to prepare for a meeting, how to execute a meeting, how to, uh, how to send away takeaways and assignments from a meeting. Uh, we've got a lot of young staff that are leading teams for the first time. They're conducting meetings. So it's a meeting about meetings. It sounds as riveting as I'm explaining it, right? One of the things that was said by the guy who was leading that meeting is no one likes a meeting that could happen in 15 minutes but takes an hour. And all God's people said, amen. No, no one likes a meeting that could have lasted 30 minutes but took two hours, right? Now I mention that because Jude in this letter packs quite a punch in this little book. It's 461 words total. It's the fifth shortest book in the Bible. And ironically, he wrote this to be read in a single meeting. So when this would have been delivered to the churches throughout the first century, the pastor or one of the elders of those churches would have stood up and said, today our sermon is going to come from the Apostle Jude and his words to us. And this would have been the sermon in a single meeting. We've taken four weeks to study it. Right? So is, is it that we are inefficient in our Sunday meetings? I would actually contend not. I would actually say what's happening here is that Jude is so sophisticated in what he's writing by the Holy Spirit that what he wrote to be read in a single meeting, we actually need multiple weeks to plumb the depths of what's happening here. And even after four weeks of being here in this book, we still haven't plumbed the depth of this sub-500 letter letter to the church, sub-500 word letter to the church. 
Think about the fact that many of the blog posts that you give yourself to online are longer than what's being given to us here in this little book of the scriptures. And and to this point, Jude has varied his tone with which he spoke. So he starts the letter, you might remember, in the first couple of verses, and he says, I want grace and peace and mercy to be multiplied to you. So he has this really tender opening to the book. He's saying that I want grace and peace and mercy, the mercy of God, to be multiplied to God's people. But he quickly moves from there and he starts stating his intentions. He puts his foot on the gas pedal a bit, if you You'll go there with me. And he says, I want to contend for the faith. So in in verse 3, he says, actually, I'm writing to you because I want to fight for the faith. Contend means fight. I want to fight for fidelity to the faith that God's given his people. I want to fight for clarity on what God has given to his people. I want to fight for submission to Jesus. And he holds this firm tone through the bulk of the book where he warns us not only against false teachers, but also against us being pulled down into their false teaching. All of us have that sort of proclivity to to just sort of accept and to believe whatever our ears want to hear. If someone tells us what we want to hear, we'll follow them without really even considering if it's true or not, unless we want to hear it. So he moves with this tender greeting. He states his intentions. He fights for the faith. He holds this firm tone through the book. And then he softens on the dissent we looked at last week. And he says, I actually also want you to have mercy on those who doubt. Which I love that little line in this book because... Which one of us doesn't doubt from time to time or even repeatedly through the life of faith? If any is even real, we wonder if we're just making this up somehow. And even we often fear that in a place of doubt, we've moved into a different category outside of God's mercy. But he actually says, if you find yourself as a doubter, you've moved yourself into the category of God's mercy. He's not insecure about what you think about him. He's not afraid of of you in the midst of doubt. He actually knows how to handle you. He knows how to move toward you. And he puts you in the category of his mercy. And so with all these tones he's spoken through this letter, all of that leads to these last two verses where there's a shout, there's a triumph at the end of this book. If this were a piece of music, if you could imagine that the book of Jude is a piece of music, these final two verses are by definition a crescendo. It's as though through the whole book, the drums are mounting, the the cymbals are coming in, there's someone with a power chord that's being struck on an electric guitar, far too low, punk rock style. I'm just trying here, guys. Maybe you can participate with me. But by definition, everything is building to this point. It's a crescendo. Even if you have a Bible opened, you'll notice there's a subheading before these last two verses. It's the word doxology. Doxology. It's a word that's made of two Greek words. The first word doxa, meaning glory, and the other word meaning uh, logos, meaning word. What he's doing here at the end of this book is a glory word. It's an expression of praise. Jude himself is exploding in worship and in praise and in joy to God. And so that'll actually shape the way we go through this. I want us to sort of explore some, some questions. The first is this, glory to who? So if this is a glory word, Jude is exploding in a crescendo here. Glory to who? Why glory? And lastly, we'll look at this this observation, the ministry of joy. So that'll shape our time as we explore the ending here of this book. Look back at verse 24, the first three words. It says this, now to him. Now to him. So here's what's happening, right? Through all of the warning, all of the teaching, all the ways he's sort of put his foot on the pedal, he now comes to these last three, uh, this last two verses in these first three words. He says, now to him. So if you go back to the beginning in verse three, Jude says, 
I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. I was eager to sort of express my delight in the grace of God, the love of God, the way he saved us in Jesus. I was eager to write to you about all of that, but I saw it right that we would contend for the faith once for all delivered. So he addresses us about false teaching and false teachers. But it's now as though at the end of the book, he goes back to that desire that he was eager to write about, that common salvation. So he says, now the business has been handled around false teaching. Let's get to what I really wanted to do. Now to him, he says. This is a glory word. He says, to him who? Well, to him who, though Jude by family is the half-brother of Jesus, he insists on calling himself a servant of Jesus. Verse four, to him who is only, our only master and Lord. So who gets this glory word? To him who made creation stand by his very word. To him who, verse five tells us, saved the Israelites from the Egyptians. It wasn't the God of the Old Testament, verse five says. That was actually Jesus, the Son of God eternal. To him who gives thunder and lightning their command, according to the book of Job. To him who spoke by the prophets of old and has kept every single one of his promises. That's who gets this glory word. To him who hung the stars, yet was born by the Virgin Mary. To him who takes naps in storm-tossed boats, yet sweat drops of blood when facing the storm of judgment for our sins at the cross. To him who set his face like a flint to Jerusalem, to free us from our sins by his blood. That's the one who gets this glory word. Now to him. And in verse 25, he finishes his thought. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And so this glory word goes out to the only God. Notice the language. The only God. And the only Savior. So this, the whole point of this book, remember, is to bring us back to the faith once for all given to the saints. This is not, then, a faith of our own making. This isn't just a cleverly crafted myth to make us feel better about ourselves and weaknesses. This is not spiritual therapy. This is not a glory word to one God among many gods or a God you could adopt that fits more of your preferences. This is, he says, to the only God, the living God. The God of the scriptures that's revealed himself supremely in Jesus Christ, his son of Nazareth. And he says it's to him, to him who gets this glory word. He says be majesty and dominion and authority and glory. It's as though he's running out of descriptors of what we ought to give this God. He's worth all of it. There's no one like him. But this moves to the second piece today. Why glory? Why glory? We're giving glory to this God, but why, why glory? And it seems like a silly question. You say, because he's worth it. Like, is there anyone else like him? He's, he's worth it. But this passage doesn't just tell us who he is. It tells us what he's done and what he's like. Pick up with me in 24. There is a feast in every word of these last verses. He says, to him who is able. Glory be to God because he's able, able to do what? To keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. There's a couple of things I want you to see. He gives us promises. The first is this. Glory be to God because he's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to keep you from stumbling. Now this is an amazing promise because it comes head on with the the fear, the great fear of every honest Christian. 
Isn't the great fear of every honest follower of Jesus, will I make it to the end? If you know yourself, if you know your faith, if you know your stumblings, isn't that the honest fear of every Christian? Will I make it to the end? And he gives us this promise. But here's the paradox of the Christian life, right? It would seem the more you get to know yourself and the more you get to know God, wouldn't it seem that you'd become less desperate over time? The more I get to know myself, that's scary. There's some dark things down there. There's some hidden things down there. There's some things that are that I don't want to I don't talk about out loud or anyone to see. I get to know myself, but then I get to know God. And so over time, it feels like he would compensate for all those things I get to know in myself. But the paradox of the Christian life is that the more you get to know yourself, those, darks, those dark places full of shadow and shame, and the more you get to know God, it's not that you become less desperate over time. You actually become more. One of the amazing things is talking to Christians who have walked with Jesus for five, six decades is to hear them pray, and they're still crying out for God's mercy. Because they know themselves. They, they, they know themselves. And so this, this is a beautiful promise given that tension. He's able to keep you from stumbling. But that actually is a tension. What a promise. But there's a tension here, right? Because this verse tells us that God can keep us from stumbling. But if we're going to look at this promise honest, we have to at least survey our life and go, isn't it the common experience of the Christian life that we're constantly stumbling? So on the one hand, we're afraid, will I make it to the end? We're comforted by a promise. He can keep us from stumbling. But then I have to be honest with myself. Aren't I always stumbling? So how do I reconcile this? Is this promise true on the one hand? You go, maybe it's not even true because I'm constantly stumbling. So maybe this isn't a true promise. Or maybe it is true, but we're so busted we're not as Christian as we think we are. (laughs) Or maybe number three, which I would contend, there's actually something deeper going on. So how is it that God keeps us from stumbling? It's a promise, yet we're always stumbling. Well, in this book, the most repeated verb used throughout these 25 verses is the verb to keep. To keep. It shows up here in this promise, but it starts back in verse 1. It says that we're kept for Jesus. Verse 1 tells us that we're kept, so the Father is keeping us for Jesus. So that's the Father's hand on us, gripping us, holding us. But then we're told in verse 21 that we need to keep ourselves in God's love. So God's doing something, verse one, keeping us for Jesus. Then we're told in verse 21 that we were responsible to do something, keep yourself in the love of God, and he has some instruction around that. We looked at last week. And then verse 24, it comes back to God. He's able to keep you from stumbling. So there's God's keeping and our keeping. There's a sort of tapestry being woven together. He's able to keep you from stumbling, but God's keeping work is mentioned twice. And our work is mentioned once. That ratio ought to clue us into what's happening here. So he's saying the Christian life is not a matter of you just getting a boost from God, but mostly about your effort and your performance all the way through. So that's what Bible Belt Christianity would often tell us, that most of the Christian life is about your effort and staying between the lines and walking the narrow road and sort of your ability to keep it all straight. That's not what Jude is saying here. God's keeping work mentioned twice. But it's also not the Christian life. It's not this sort of popular phrase we often hear, let go and let God, you know? What a confusing, what does that even mean? Let go and do what? Let go and let God pay my bills. Like, let, like, 
How does that work? That's, that's such a silly phrase. That's not what the Christian, that's not even the Bible, right? So the Christian life is not just sort of all your work, you keep yourself, but it's also not this sort of innocent bystander, passive bystander where God just sort of miraculously carries you along like a puppet. We're not passive bystanders, but we're not also solo actors. This same tension of God's work and ours is in Philippians 2. I think Ben said he mentioned this last week. Notice what it says there. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that sounds a lot like Jude verse 21. Keep yourself in the love of God. You carry out the Christian life. You work out the Christian life. And you do it with fear and trembling because it's not your homeboy that saved you. This is the living God that saved you. You do so with reverence. You do so with honor. God has done something in my life. I need to work it out in submission and obedience to Jesus. But you don't do that by yourself as though you're a solo actor, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will, to want, and to follow through, to work for his good pleasure. So again, there's this tapestry of God's work and your work. God's keeping and your keeping being woven together. So how does this promise work? There's a quote by Dr. Piper that I'll read here that I think pulls it together. In the Christian life, you work and you will to kill your sin. And you do it with fear and trembling. Why? Because God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, redeemer, justifier, sustainer, father, lover, is so close to you that your working and your willing are his working and willing. He's suggesting in the Christian life, when you're obeying Jesus, where do you think the desire and ability to obey came from? Your working and your willing are actually his working and his willing on your behalf. He says, tremble at this breathtaking thought. God Almighty is in you. God is the one in you willing. God is the one in you working. So your continuous, sustained, strenuous, and doesn't that feel like the Christian life? Your continuous effort is not only being carried out in the very presence of an all-holy God, but it is the very continuous, sustained, strenuous effort of God himself. You're not waiting for a miracle, not let go and let God. You're acting a miracle. Your action is God's action in fighting your sin. Your willing is God's willing. He's able to keep you from stumbling while you keep yourself in love of God because you're kept by the Father for Jesus Christ. This tapestry of your keeping and God's working together. So this is not a promise that you won't ever stumble because clearly we do, you do, I do. But this is a promise that in the midst of all the stumbling, to put it in layman's terms, this is God shouting, the Father shouting through the Apostle Jude, I will get you home. I will get you home. You won't ultimately stumble. You won't finally stumble. You're not up for grabs. You're not debatable. You're not negotiable. You're not sort of a, a, a chip of negotiation between God and the enemy. You belong. You are kept by the Father for the Son. As you keep yourself in the love of God, he will keep you from stumbling. I will get you home. The Christian life is not so much caught up in your grip on God but the Christian life is entirely caught up in his grip on you. And it's in the midst of that that you keep yourself in the love of God. It's grace in the beginning. You and I didn't start the faith. It's grace in the beginning. 
whatever is holding you right now as a follower of Jesus is grace in the middle, not primarily your effort. And whatever gets you to the end is grace. It's grace that lets you see him face to face. So he says, the first promise is I'll keep you from stumbling. The second promise, and I'll present you blameless. Now to him who can present you blameless before his presence, before the presence of his glory. Guys, I love this. Can you just imagine standing before the presence of God with nothing to hide? Standing before God with nothing to cover over, nothing to explain, nothing to like just hope he doesn't see it and pretend it's not there. Standing before the presence of God, blameless. Can you just imagine that? What's amazing is this isn't just sort of the figment of our imagination. This is a promise that he just pushes across the table and says, I want you to have that. That is a promise that you can hold and that you can have and that you can keep as a follower of Jesus, as you're kept for Jesus. And what's interesting about the the two promises he gives here, he can keep you from stumbling, and then this one, is that they actually work together. So how is it that God keeps you from stumbling? He gives you more promises. (laughs) One of the ways that God keeps you from stumbling is to give you a second promise, that he'll present you blameless before his presence. It's meant to capture your imagination to go, oh my gosh, that reality's out there for me. Oh my, that's coming for me. That belongs to me. There's something about that promise that hitches you to him, and by being hitched to him, he keeps you from stumbling. You see it. These two promises actually work together. And so there's coming a day, believer, where you don't present yourself before the Father. You're presented. Notice the language of the text. To him who's able to present you. You don't present yourself. You don't state your own case. You don't bring blamelessness before the Father because you don't have that to bring. You're presented blameless. One of the ways this is illustrated comes from, uh, I'll just steal a, um, steal a story from one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg. He's a Presbyterian preacher, but he even makes Presbyterian churches come alive with his preaching. It's amazing. He tells a story of the thief on the cross, the one who confessed Christ as Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says, can you imagine the thief? He's dying a convicted criminal. He's dying a criminal's death, sentenced. And he shows up in heaven. And he's sort of just standing there going, what in the world? And the angel comes by and he says, "What, what are you doing here? And he replies, I have no idea. I have no idea what I'm doing here. And he says, well, how did you get here? And he replies, and he says, I have no idea how I got here. And the angel starts to look a bit confused, like, give some sort of answer for yourself, you know? I mean, this guy, he's never attended a Bible study. He was never baptized. He didn't know anything about being a member of a church. He didn't know anything about the high doctrines of justification by faith or the doctrine of Scripture or anything else. So the angel says, well, why why should we let you in? And he says, I have no idea. The only reason I'm here is because the man on the middle cross said that I could come. 
It's the only reason I'm here. The man on the middle cross said that I could come. If there's any answer to any of those questions, why are you here? How did you get here? Why should we let you in? If there's any answer that starts with I, well, I had faith, or I did this, or I was good. It's an insufficient answer because those things don't present you blameless before the Father. There's only one who presents you that way. It's not just that his work covers your sin. It's that his work is so covering that it presents you blameless before the Father. The man on the middle cross said that I could come. And so he gives these promises. This is a glory word. Like this is Jude freaking out on the glory of God, the grace of God, the love of God. Oh my gosh, this has really come to us. He's able to keep me from stumbling and present me before his presence. Blameless. But there's the final move today, the ministry of joy. Because we've got to ask a question. This is God's work, right? He's the keeper. He's the one who presents us. He's the one who sent his son to make it able that we're blameless. So how does God show up for work? Like, what's the demeanor of God? Have you ever thought about that? What's the demeanor of God as he does the things that only he does? What's the attitude that, with which that God shows up to work every day over you? What's the look on his face as he carries out his keeping work over you? What do you think he thinks about the fact that there's coming a day when he's going to present you before him blameless. What's his demeanor? The amazing thing about this doxology is it actually answers the question. We don't have to just make up our answer. Read verse 24 again with me. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, the last three words, with great joy. What in the world? Like this is, guys, I can't make this up. Like none of us would make this up. This is, this is why Jude calls this a glory word, a doxology. So this means to just frame this in the negative and to just sort of upend Bible Belt teaching, religiosity, God does not have a disapproving scowl over you. He doesn't. God's not looking. He doesn't have his arms folded over you. When are they going to figure it out? When are they finally going to get their act together? Wherever that vision or imagination of God came from is not the Bible. It's not authoritative. With great joy. He doesn't have a disapproving scowl. He doesn't have his arms folded. He's not obligated toward you. The way God carries out his keeping work and his presenting work for you with great joy, which means he's not like, well, I'm obligated to this one because you know, I made this whole deal. If they believe in my son, that I would save them. And well, I guess I gotta save this when they, hold, they confessed my son after all. As though it's an obligation of a transaction business deal. He's not obligated. He's not inconvenienced over you. With great joy means God does not see you as an inconvenience. I just have to hear this for myself, right? Like, you're not an inconvenience to God. 
the sin that is still eating you up, the sin that you feel like you should have moved past by now, the ways that you're still stumbling that you wish you weren't. I know he says he can keep me from stumbling, but I'm still stumbling with that promise. He's not, you're not an inconvenience to God. Maybe just to do this one more, because there's so much here just to work down inside of us. He doesn't second guess you. There's not a moment where the Father has ever had a second thought about you of, I wish I hadn't committed myself to that one. With great joy, with great joy, he keeps you. With great joy, he shouts, I'll get you home. With great joy, he offers the work of his son to you that he might present you blameless before him with great joy, with great joy. I'm not making this up. This is in this text, but it's other places in scripture. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one who doesn't just have the ability to save, but who will save. He will rejoice, notice the language, he will rejoice over you with gladness. That is the disposition of the Father. He will quiet you by his love. Notice this last piece. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's the attitude of the Father when he shows up to work over you. He's not begrudgingly engaging your life. Exulting over you with loud singing. Rejoicing over you with gladness. Psalm 32, verse 7. He's, the, David prays, God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. This is a fascinating line. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then it has the whole selah in the Psalms. Like, you need to pause after that one. That's amazing. The Father surrounds his people with shouts of deliverance. You're free. You're free in my love. You're free with my spirit indwelling you. You're free with the work of my son covering you. You're free in my promises that now belong to you. You're free with my people who surround you as a new family. You're free in the songs that I give my church to sing. You're free. Sin, shame, the devil, his accusations against you will not stand. There are shouts of deliverance coming from the Father that surround his people. Too often we live with our ears tuned to something else. But I'm not making this up. How does God carry out his keeping work or his presenting work? With great joy. And so Jude ends this letter because this is the vision of the Christian life that he wants us to have. He says, hey guys, there's dangers in false teachers who will nuance the truth. There's dangers in people who will just give a skewed reference or a skewed insight here or there and they'll sound really smart, but don't be swayed. This is the faith once for all given to the saints. Don't be pulled down by false teaching. Don't chase them. Hey, you measure it against God's holy word because there's nothing better than this to him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you before his presence, blameless, with great joy. This vision will keep you running your race. Do you see Jesus? There he is. You're getting closer. You realize the scriptures say you're closer now than when you first believed. You're even closer now than when I first started this sermon. You're getting closer. 
Keep running, keep fighting, keep guarding. Soon you will see him as he is and then you will see his scarred hands and look into his majestic eyes and his lips will move and they will say, well done. And he will place a crown on your head and on that day you will not regret the fighting. You will not regret the running and you will not regret the enduring for his name's sake. On that day, there are zero regrets. It was always worth it. And for sure on that day, that's a glory word. And so there's three little pieces of application I wanna offer and we'll be done. They're simple questions. Where in your life do you feel tempted to take an off ramp? It'd be one thing for us to just go, hey, that's an amazing truth. Let's just celebrate that. But like, let's let that truth engage and intersect our own places of darkness, right? Like that's what the doxology is meant to do, to hold you. So where in your life is there a temptation toward it? You just want to give your flesh a release valve, just that pet sin. I, I, I want to get back on the road, but just, just enough to sort of just take a break and let me do my own thing. Take an off ramp from obeying Jesus for a minute. Where are you tempted? This word engages that temptation. Me too, I got those places. He says, hey listen, to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, don't take the off ramp. It hasn't satisfied before and it won't this time either. Stay the road. The second question, where are you tempted to give up? Where are you? Some of you are like, that's not an offering if I'm looking for. I'm just tired of this whole thing. I'm not even sure about it anymore. I'm ready to pull the e-brake right here on the road. Give up. This glory word meets you in that place, and he says, to him who's able to present you blameless before his presence. Don't give up. Hey, listen, God is not giving up. God will not give up. You don't give up. Third question, where are you tempted to despair? Where in your life is there temptation to just lose hope, right? Like, how many more shootings do we have to hear about? You're tempted to like, is hope even worth hanging on to anymore? Where are you tempted? Hey, in the midst of all of the things we see across our country and the globe, God is on his throne. He's not confused, and every injustice will be turned to right, and on the great day, he will be seen as a wise and good judge, and that none of those things happened outside of his ability to rule with peace and justice. And so we're tempted to despair, but there's the scripture that tells us that he does his work over you, over me, and bringing many to repentance with great joy. Stay the road. Stay the road. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice, but stay the road. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these scriptures. Thank you for these words that teach us of your character, your work. Thank you for these scriptures that 
that engage us in these places of temptation to quit or to off-ramp. Father, would you, would, you, would you affect us all over again today with these promises that you're able to keep us from stumbling and that one day we'll stand before you because of Jesus with nothing to hide. Father, thank you for that promise. And so we offer these prayers. We, we ask for your help in the strong name of our Lord. Amen.